There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way This is Rod Adams, and it's time for another Atomic Show. Today, I'm talking with Patrick McClure and David Poston, both of whom were key members of the Krusty Project. That's kilowatt reactor using Sterling technology. And for those who like to play with acronyms, in order to make that work, they had to use the last letter of the word technology rather than the first letter. Patrick and David uh, accomplished something that very few people have done in the last 40 years in the U.S. They developed and operated a new design for a nuclear power reactor and produced electricity. Uh, Patrick, why don't you give a little bit more information about yourself, and then David will follow you after that. Thank you. Uh, my name's Pat McClure. Uh, I currently, right now, I have a startup with Dave Poston called Space Nuclear Power Corporation, or as we like to say, Space Nukes. I, I was at Los Alamos for 27 years, and I've been doing uh, nuclear engineering uh, for well over 30 years. Uh, my primary uh, field is regulatory. I do the regulatory part of stuff uh, while Dave does the reactor design. Dave? Hello, my, my name is Dave Poston. I uh, have a long career in this, um, this field. I started out as a mechanical engineer and uh, was fortunate enough to work for General Electric on nuclear reactors and more specifically a project called SP100 that, that was a space reactor to produce electricity in space. And to me, this really hit a nerve is something I'd really love to do because I'd always been a child of reading science fiction and, you know, just a space nut. And to be able to do something to help us expand into space was really something I was interested in. So I, I spent a lot of time uh, early on on nuclear thermal rockets and, uh, and kind of more futuristic systems. And, you know, you always have to have a, a balance between idealism and pragmatism and uh, maybe a little too idealistic early in my career. Um, and maybe that's come full circle and it's actually getting something done. So after that, I, I, I went to get a PhD um, in nuclear uh, propulsion, worked at Los Alamos a long time, went through a bunch of failed programs. And the, the benefit of that was kind of learned that yeah, I think we are trying to do too much on the first step to get anything done realistically. So that's how we ended up with Krusty and the Kilopower program. One of the things that I learned reading the papers that you shared with me was that Krusty didn't have a lot of requirements uh, stated, except the major requirement was it needed to actually work. Can you describe a little bit more about how you determined what exactly you wanted to build? and what you needed to uh, prove through the end of the project. Go ahead, Pat. So uh, what really got Kilopower kicked off was uh, Dave Poston and Lee Mason had worked with John Cassani of Voyager fame to look at small reactors. And what we all realized was in the past, everyone had said that developing a reactor was going to be a billion dollars. And what Dave and I and some other folks began to realize is we thought we could build something like kilopower very, very cost effectively. And so in some ways, this again comes back to if you can, if you can build a reactor, people will find uses. And, and once we thought we had something that, that could be built, people started to adjust their requirements to that. And, and one of our first champions was uh, Johnson Space Flight Center. The people doing architectural studies for Mars there said, hey, if you can build us a 10 kilowatt reactor, we'd much rather have that for, uh, five of those for Mars than 140 kilowatt. And so from, from that point on, we actually sort of had that first person to say, hey, we think we've got some mission pull. Uh, that led to JPL and the folks there saying, hey, we could use reactors and, and revolutionize deep space science. And then we even began looking at lunar missions. So in some sense, we, we tried to tell them what we could build, and then we let the requirements become what we could go get accomplished. 
what was it that uh, made you think that you could build a one to 10 kilowatt uh, machine far easier than building something that can produce 40 kilowatts? Yeah, I, I'd spent a lot of time in my career designing reactors ranging from, you know, 40 kilowatts to megawatts. And in every case, you would hit uh, what I would call knees in the curve or a place where a technical challenge becomes significantly harder if you try to exceed it. And that can be in, in all sorts of uh, uh, engineering uh, phenomenon, whether it's you know, temperature, stress, uh, damage of the fuels to your radiation. And it just, everything gets so much simpler with low power that that's really when we started to think, man, we could do this, you know, for tens of millions instead of a billion. If we could come up with something that people might be interested in, like Pat said, that could also be done within a realistic top cost and schedule. The, the kilopower uh, system, can you describe that a little bit, uh, Patrick or Dave? You know, what, what is it that, that is producing the heat, how does the heat get turned into useful uh, power, electricity? Uh, what kind of environment is it designed to operate in? How would you test it to that environment? It's a long list of questions, but uh, we started off kind of maybe assuming that people knew what a kilo, kilowatt uh, reactor might look like, but they probably don't. Dave, I'll let you do that one. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the first thing you start with is fission, right, which which is a long-established uh, uh, physical process where the atom splits into two pieces. And when it does so, it, it uh, produces energy along with Einstein's famous E equals mc squared. There's less mass than you started with when you break these uh, this uranium atom into two pieces. And that comes out as energy. And what's really nice about the fission process is almost all of the energy is deposited locally, right near where the fission takes place. And so that's in our fuel. What We have our uranium metal fuel. So energy is deposited there. Now we just have to get it you know, out to, uh, to the, the power conversion system. And in conduction, you know, heat will conduct through metals pretty well because so metal will conduct heat much better than a ceramic or other material. And really, what, what makes kilopower special is the use of heat pipes to take that fission heat up to the power conversion system. And this nobody had ever done a reactor uh, before that used heat pipes, even though they were invented at Los Alamos really for that purpose in the 60s. And what, what the heat pipe is is a closed tube that um, contains a liquid and you boil that liquid where the heat goes in and it condenses and gives its heat to the other end of the heat pipe where your power conversion system is. It's extremely efficient. And as people were a little bit worried about how it would perform dynamically or in a transient um, sense. And what this test shows is that not only is it extremely efficient, it's extremely uh, predictable and simple such that it deposits the heat at the, the power conversion system, which takes heat, turns it into electricity. And there's lots of ways to do that. We use the Stirling engine, which is the best uh, technology choice for this size of a system. It takes the heat and turns, the, uh, turns that power into mechanical motion, like any, any um, engine will do, a heat engine. And when that and then it moves uh, basically a piston back and forth uh, that that will create electricity via um, a, a magnetic field. So the because your system is designed to operate in space, the heat uh, engine, heat conversion system, the, the area around your Stirling engines was placed in a vacuum. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, I, Pat, you can kind of, by default, maybe go every other <laughs> question, but yes. Um, yeah, and, and so the reason we had to do it in a vacuum is, is, is to get a realistic heat transfer because things transfer much better if there's air uh, between your hand, say, and, uh, and a flagpole versus not. And so, yeah, we had to make sure we got the heat transfer correct. And uh, also our fuel would have had interacted with air or other, there was air there. 
So yes, yeah, it's designed to operate in space, and we wanted to make sure our test um, accurately portrayed the actual environment. One of the things I noticed from your papers, and it's a little bit surprising to me, although I've read about Stirling engines and heard about them as proven technology, there weren't many Stirling engines available. In fact, you were only able to obtain two Stirling engines out of the eight that your system was designed to use, and the other six spots were filled up with some simulators, some gas-filled simulators. Can, can you uh, help us understand what it is about Stirling engines? That it, it, what's the current production rate? What's the current inventory level of Stirling engines around the world? So I'll, I'll do this one. So Stirling engines are actually, there are many manufacturers that do them for commercial applications. So there are companies out there for right now that were making them, for instance, so that you could use natural gas to power the Stirling and deliver electricity to your house. Uh, so those are very those are fairly inexpensive in relation to the ones that NASA uses. So NASA typically, when they build a Stirling engine, has very specific requirements and very heavy QA. So they get they get you know hundreds, if not thousands, of times more expensive. Uh, so the engines we chose for that one were ones that were part of a different program meant to connect to a radioisotope system, which is, you know, runs off the decay heat from plutonium-238. But because they had already been developed and had already been purchased, uh, in order to keep our program costs down, we, we borrowed those two. Uh, we couldn't borrow eight because they didn't have eight, or, or we would have. Uh, but for the future... Uh, We've already identified individuals or companies that will provide us Stirling engines for space. What is it about the extra QA that NASA adds that causes cost factors of a thousand uh, compared to a commercial version? Man, Pat, do you have an answer for that one? Yeah, so it's it really has to do with the fact that you know the when you make a prototype, something for the very first time, first of a kind. There's a lot of costs that go into the research and development to make that. And then once NASA gets ready to test it, QA typically costs a lot because you're, you're doing a lot of testing to ensure, for instance, like on a Stirling engine, that there are no uh, possible uh, foreign material in the metal. So you have to do a lot of uh, coupon testing that the material you got is, is, re, is the material that you asked for. So they have to do a lot of coupon testing. All of that quality assurance, along with the fact that it's first of a kind, and that cost has to be absorbed someplace. If you're only building two, then those two units get all of that cost. Whereas if you're going to build 10,000 units, that cost gets spread over 10,000. So that's typically why something that NASA might want would say cost a thousand times more. And I would say uh, that they've also fallen trapped to the, you know, trying to do a little too much, even with their Stirling engines. It, and it's a different application. When they were really trying to develop these Stirling engines, it was for radioisotope power systems, where they're really limited on how much power you can get out. And they were trying to squeeze every ounce of efficiency out of this engine, make it as light as possible and produce as much power as they could. And that kept adding and adding more requirements that made it more difficult. And so, but with the fission reactor, we can provide as much thermal power as any power conversion system would want, you know, first order. So we kind of remove that constraint of really trying to push the engines to advanced performance. And we can just settle with, you know, uh, average nominal performance instead. Do you think there's any room for a commercial dedication commercial off-the-shelf type uh, conversion. I think that's being used more and more in the commercial nuclear sector rather than specifying unique first-of-a-kind systems. If there's already a pump or a valve or some other type of component, electronics, for example, uh, there is a way to, to, to do enough QA to prove that it's going to do what you want it to do. You think that might work for NASA as well? So the answer is yes, that commercial dedication, commercial grade dedication would work for NASA. Matter of fact, for a project we're trying to get started, we have looked at some of the off-the-shelf Stirlings. Now, not always do they always comply with exactly what we need. In, ca in this case, 
the commercial equipment we're looking at doesn't necessarily reject at high enough temperatures for us. So we may have to make changes, but there's absolutely room for commercial grade dedication in, in this, in this industry. And the, the, um, just the fact that Krusty worked is a testament to that approach, right? We, we didn't rely on any new technology for this reactor. We took stuff that we could find that could be built, was currently being built um, and put together. And that's really the reason the, the reactor worked. I mean, the power conversion system is a different animal because there is no off-the-shelf power conversion system at these temperatures that we could use. But the main reason for our success as a reactor was using that approach. We studied what's available and, and put together the best system we could based on what was available. You mentioned that the reactor was a uh, metal, uranium molybdenum alloy. How was it configured? Did it have assemblies? Was it a monolithic single unit? What was the control? Can you describe a little bit more about the reactor? And I'm aiming at David since you're the the engineer here. Yes, it is a cast piece of metal like you normally think of anyone pouring molten metal into a cast and it coming out as a solid piece. It It is uh, uh, literally that simple. And that part of the reason for that is this they do this at the Y-12 security complex in Oak Ridge. As a matter of fact, they do this process all the time. And so that was one of the reasons. Plus, it does make it simpler. We don't have to have a lot of assembly involved. Our reactor, we assembled in the hallway at the test site without any problem, you know, because there's so few parts and everything uh, fit together so simply that I think that was really one of the, well, this, the selling points was the solid fuel. And it's also, besides just being what we could make and the easiest to make and assemble, it's actually the best possible configuration for fission as well, because you don't have other materials in your reactor core that might absorb neutrons. It's all fuel, so you can make it as small and compact as possible with this approach. And the heat removal is good, like I said, because it's metal conduction, so it's easy to get the heat, in this case, to the heat pipes from where the fission takes place. Now, your heat pipes weren't embedded in the core itself, right? They were surrounding the core on the outside. Is is that correct? Correct. It was, uh, they were, that, that really facilitated simple fabrication and simple assembly because they weren't integral to the core. We did machine slots into the fuel that these heat pipes fit into. And then we had a clamping mechanism that pressed those heat pipes into the fuel so we get th good thermal contact and structural support such that that made uh, that that really made things a lot simpler our higher power designs will put heat pipes in the middle of the core and there's lots of ways we can do that but the simplest approach and the one that got crusty to work was keeping them on the outside of the fuel patrick you mentioned that you're or pat you mentioned that you're the, the regulatory guy can you explain a little bit about how you got crusty through the process of uh, review and approval. Who licensed this reactor to operate? Great question. Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, making sure that we could get regulatory approval for Krusty. So the place that we actually did this work was the Nevada test site, now actually called the Nas uh, Nevada National Security Site. At the time, uh, we were going to do this on what's known as a critical experiment machine. And what's nice about those is they already have an approved control system. It basically brings two pieces of, 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 you know, like a reflector and nuclear material together to form a critical configuration. But they are limited in the amount of reactivity that you can have on the machine. So if a dollar reactivity, if inst inserted instantaneously, could get you to uh, operating on prompt neutrons, these machines are limited to 80 cents of reactivity. But to get to the temperature we wanted, which was 800 C, we were going to need at least $1.70 to get there, plus some margin. So we needed to ask for $2.50. Now, as part of this, like most people, you model a system before you go do the test, because that's what your regulatory basis is on. And Dave was doing wonderful modeling. But the problem was, because no one's ever built this reactor, we didn't have a benchmark code. So what I did was we talked with the regulator, and what we convinced them was, was that we were going to run three pre-experiments before the final experiment, 
and we would let Dave monitor the first two ex experiments, make sure that his code data looked good. And then the requirement was Dave had to predict the third experiment, uh, which was an insertion of 60 cents. And he had to actually get the peak temperature uh, within about plus or minus 10%. And what we didn't tell them, we did that in K as opposed to C. But Dave actually nailed it within one degree. And so what that did was that gave confidence to the regulator that we could predict the system well enough that we could run the test. And so uh, that was sort of the unique regulatory approach that we used. I'm not sure that you mentioned who was the regulator here. Oh, sorry. Uh, that was the Department of Energy. Department of Energy, you know, much like uh, regulates uh, government facilities like uh, the Nevada test site. So I should have I should have mentioned that. I apologize. Was there any uh, requirement to do some environmental impact statements or environmental assessments or something under the, the NEPA, which I personally doesn't, I don't think that anybody should consider that a kilopower reactor or even a megawatt reactor uh, qualifies as a major federal action, but that's not for me to decide. So we did talk with the NEPA, the folks that do NEPA out at, at the test site. Uh, because the critical experiment machines live there, they are used, you know, uh, consider it daily, uh, their exercise. This was considered still another critical experiment. We weren't doing anything that would that would have affected the environment or potential consequences off-site. Matter of fact, we were below anything that was actually analyzed in their current safety analysis report. So it was looked at, and we were deemed to fit within the current NEPA. So we weren't required to go do an environmental assessment or or environmental impact statement. David, you mentioned that you were able to assemble the core. I think, and you said in the hallway, I have this vision of a guy named Lewis Slotkin who was assembling things many years ago. What it was it that made sure that your reactor wasn't going to uh, accidentally go critical when you were doing the assembly of the core? That's a great question. And that really, that's something we're kind of proud of that we, we made this design uh, such that there was no way it could go critical unless it was surrounded by the beryllium reflector um, and the control rod was out. And so it, it, it became very simple. We still had to do all the calculations, and I would do a bunch of calculations for FAD that show, you know, if somebody stacks these, the, we had our core was in three of these cast pieces because one piece was too big for them to make. But we stacked them on whatever configuration we wanted, Drop them in buckets of water, surrounded them by lots of people. There's just it would never come close to becoming critical, and that's that's really the magic of beryllium in a new in a nuclear sense. Beryllium is a fantastic scatterer of neutrons, and and nothing can make this reactor go critical unless it's surrounded by beryllium or or a fissile material. Obviously, if you put more fuel around the outside, it could go critical. But the uh, in that not only that, it was almost a, a secondary benefit that it made our operation so simple. Because the main reason we do that is for launch safety. Um, because if this thing falls in the ocean, if the pieces get spread out or deformed, it's still not going to go critical. And so we started with that. We started with, we have to make this system absolutely, you know, a rock solid case for launch safety. And the added benefit was it made operational safety a no-brainer because nobody could do any calculation that said it was ever close to critical until it was a fully assembled. And then, then you have to make sure that you, uh, you don't surround it with the beryllium once it's fully assembled, unless you're trying to make it go critical. How big was your core? You mentioned it was a very compact core, but how, how compact was it? Go for it, Pat. So the core was about four inches in diameter. It was about 10 inches tall. Uh, it weighed, I think the total weight was just around 30 kilograms, of which about 28 kilograms of that was HEU metal. Uh, it was cast in three pieces. The reason for that was so that we could keep below the criticality limits at the Y-12 plant uh, for casting. That kept us far below any, any criticality concerns. And so, yeah, it's about the size of a paper towel roll is the best analogy. And another reason for that size was they regularly ship uh, uh, uranium in a container that you could has about a four inch diameter. 
And so, you know, if we had gone to a bigger size, all of a sudden we're trying to qualify our new shipping container and we would have never gotten the project done. And it's just kind of fortuitous that this size core can make a useful amount of power. And we haven't gotten to this point yet, but, you know, the kilopower reactor that Krusty demonstrated was, a, you know, a four kilowatt thermal, one kilowatt electric system. The fuel itself can put out a lot more power and not overheat. It, it could have put out, you know, 25 kilowatts thermal if we had the ability to take that out. Um, but but since the Sterling converters we were able to get free, uh, uh, only uh, drew about 300 watts each, uh, you know, or up to 500 watts. And then we wanted our simulators to look like those Sterlings for the system test. We really limited how much thermal power we got out. But in future designs, we're looking at using the exact same fuel, but but trying to get a lot more power out. Your reactor used uh, high enriched uranium. Can you explain a little bit about why that was your choice and what advantages it brought to your development? And I'm aiming at Pat here. Yeah. So so really, if you look at the history of space reactors, going back to 1958. All space reactor projects up until 2015 were HEU. Matter of fact, if you actually look at the UN, UN guidance on the use of nuclear power in space, it will specify HEU as well. The one U.S. reactor that was flown in 1965 was HEU. The 33 or so Soviet reactors were all HEU. The reason HEU has some advantages is it allows someone like Dave as a designer to play with other factors, like one of the reasons that Dave's reactors don't go critical in water is that he keeps the neutron leakage high by keeping the height of the reactor twice the diameter. And you can do that with HEU. That is much harder to do with LEU. Can be done with LEU fast reactor metal, but as you move to moderated uh, LEU systems, that becomes almost impossible so, so then you have to go and, and do things like uh, some type of internal poison or, or destroying the reactor. So for us, HEU has always been the natural choice uh, for space reactors. Uh, recently, the government wrote a brand new uh, directive, uh, Space Policy Directive 6, that discourages the use but does not ban it. And we believe that for most applications... Uh, HEU is going to be a better choice with the exception of maybe some surface power reactor. Yeah, HEU allows for that compact and tall design that does provide a lot of uh, surface area for both leakage and for heat transfer that uh, allowed your system to have that massive amount of heat transfer via heat pipes that were just in the periphery of the core. What was at the interior part of your core, what was the center of the crusty uh, core, Dave? Yeah, so the center is is where the the boron carbide, uh, what most people call control rod, goes. And so that there's a it's basically a void in the fuel that's about two inches across, and uh, there there is a difference between crusty and the flight reactor in that the flight reactor will be controlled by that rod in the center that moves it in and out. Whereas, as Pat mentioned, at for Krusty, where we tested, they had a system uh, that was qualified to move large things. And so we moved the reflector to insert reactivity instead of pulling out a control rod. And so that that that's the difference. And a lot of people kind of like to focus on that distance as making it non-prototypic. But yeah, a nuclear engineer is generally aware of the term point kinetics, point kinetic reactor. And that's how we simplify all of our reactor design, especially early in the process. And a point kinetic reactor just means that all the neutrons are kind of in communication with each other. And, and that's another great thing about this fast, compact reactor is the mean free path of a neutron is a few centimeters and the whole core's you know, only tens of centimeters across. So it the every part of the reactors knows what's going on relative to the rest. It is in the 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 extreme example of the opposite is Chernobyl. If Chernobyl operated point kinetic reactor, there's no way it would have happened. And if you if you 
if you modeled it with a point kinetic reactor cove, the accident wouldn't happen because they were decreasing system reactivity when the rods were going in. But unfortunately, they had one part of the reactor, the bottom of the reactor was so supercritical and going up in criticality, the controlled rods were having no effect because there were different regions of the reactor. And and the reason I, I say the point uh, kinetics is so important in, in our case is it doesn't care where the reactivity is inserted, whether you pull out the center rod or raise the external reflector, the system's gonna behave the same way. And the final thing is that center hole not only um, is for control rod, what, what we really liked about it is we could put a heater in there to put five kilowatts up to 10 kilowatts of heat into the system. And that's really one of the advantages we've always known about the heat pipe reactor is non-nuclear testing or electrically heated testing. If you, if you have a flowing fluid, either gas or liquid, you have to penetrate that system to get the heat in. Well, here we put a heater that's not part of the coolant system to heat up the fuel. And then the rest of the system doesn't really know if there's a heater or there's fission taking place. And that, that hole was really beneficial from that standpoint. Even, even on the final assessed, uh, assembled crusty, before we started it up, we did a resistant heated testing run to, uh, to make sure everything was working. And, and that was another thing the regulator really liked, the DOE regulator, is we could go through all these non-nuclear tests and show them what's going to happen in, in addition to what Pat talked about. You also were able to prove the fabrication of your core by using something that isn't HEU. As a matter of fact, it was as far from HEU as you could get by using depleted uranium. Can you describe a little bit about how that worked out? So I'll take this one, Dave. So yeah, we were going to use, first of all, uh, how Y12 cast uranium metal is they will all, it's, it's really, I hate to say this, it's more art than science because the cool down rate of the uranium as it's cast will really largely affect whether you develop any voids in the material. Uh, so even though Y12 is very good at this, and they do it a lot. They did have to, 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 to try to do it a couple of times before they got it, the recipe right. And DU allows them to do that with no worries about criticality or wasting uh, good, you know, good uranium fuel. But now what we wanted was we wanted the DU core for electrically heated testing prior to the nuclear testing. So uh, we were glad that they cast us three pieces of depleted uranium, prove out the process. And then uh, when we asked, they went ahead and cast us our HEU core and then sent it along. But the process worked very, very, very well. While we've been sitting talking, I keep looking at my 32 ounce Yeti cup and thinking it looks almost exactly the same size as your core. It's a little bit shorter. It's only nine inches tall instead of 11, but it is four inches in diameter. So for those of you who keep your water in a nice insulated cup, that's a, a good visualization for what this core might have looked like. Because my Yeti cup is polished metal. So <laughs> yeah. anyway, that's a, it's it's amazing that you can get so much power out of such a small hunk of metal. What kind of temperatures did Krusty operate? Krusty uh, Krusty operated at eight hundred degrees Celsius or 1073 Kelvin. So it's very high temperature, which which is great for a space reactor. I mean, to step back, you know, in space, our biggest efficiency is how we can reject heat. On the ground, we've got a, a river, a pond, or a cooling tower. In space, all we really have is radiation, right? Something gets hot and thermal radiation from it. And, and, and especially if you're going to operate in the vicinity of the sun or the earth, you need to have the, temp the rejection temperature to be well over 100 degrees C and maybe 200 degrees C. And if you're, if anyone took thermodynamics, uh, you know they're they're familiar with Carnot efficiency, right? Is is how much heat you can get out? Uh, I mean, how much um, what the efficiency of a process will be uh, to take heat into mechanical energy, and uh, it's it's it requires a high temperature system and Generally, we would have said, oh, we can only go like uh, 700C. That's standard, like advanced reactors. But because we didn't have anything else in our fuel and it was so simple and the, the U-Molly can go to 
high temperatures, it really made a nice system where we went to 800 C. And that the the other the other factor um, that we haven't talked about is is how how the reactor operates, um, and the what what happens when it gets hotter. Uh, it, it the 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 physics of the system cause the power to go down and it wants to come back down to what it's what we call its thermostat temperature is and uh, so the reactor really does operate like a thermostat in many ways as you as you're used to just in your house um, when we set the reactivity level we set a temperature that the reactor wants to stay at and if it gets too hot what happens is the it, it's literally as simple as the atoms expand. You know, any most materials expand when you heat them up. The uranium expands because we have all this great leakage we talked about. More neutrons leak out, it causes the power to go down. And if it, vice versa, if the, the reactor gets too cold, the atoms get closer together. There's more fission because less neutrons leak out and it comes back up. So not only was this the only new reactor tested in the United States in 40 years. It's actually a very unique and awesome reactor in terms that it's load following, self-regulating. It doesn't require, quote, reactor control after the startup, which is huge for operating in space, that we don't have to rely on a reactor control system to power the reactor. It's all controlled by the Stirling engines. How much power they draw determines the reactor power. So it's, it's really slick in that, that uh, sense. Your project uh, started sometime in the 2014 uh, timeframe. When was it actually funded and when did you do your operational testing? Patrick, can you give us a timeline of this development project? So the original idea came about in 2010 uh, with a report done by John Cassani that Dave Poston and Lee Mason worked on. In 2011, Dave and I took up the, the call to try to see if we could get NASA to fund this idea. And so we, with along with the folks at NASA Glenn, that would have been Mark Gibson and Lee Mason, we did a precursor test called DUF, Demonstration Using Flat Top Fission. Uh, that's an existing critical experiment machine at the Nevada test site. And all we did there was we took that existing core, we put a water heat pipe in it to a low temperature Stirling and showed that we could get fission that we could uh, drive a Stirling engine to make electricity. And we did that test for about 750K, $750,000. And that's what convinced NASA that we were serious and that we knew what, that we could do this. So Dave and I and Lee Mason and Mark Gibson then lobbied NASA all through 2013 to, that test was finished in 2012, to fund a project. Eventually, the game-changing development part of STM, Space Technology Mission Directorate, said yes. We also got the National Nuclear Security Administration on board, uh, and they actually chipped in a third of the funding. And so we planned a project that would be three years, about $15 million. Took us about three and a half years. Cost us $18 million. So 12 of that came from NASA, six from NNNSA. We got started in October of 2014. We actually finished the test, complete test in March of 2018. And so three and a half years wasn't bad. Like I said, we were a little bit over, but not much. As far as we were concerned, for $18 million, we had accomplished a tremendous amount. Tell me a little bit about the operational test. How long did it last? What were some of the things that you were able to prove to yourself? How did the reactor respond? Yeah, that's 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 the stuff I love talking about because that that really was the purpose was to show how it operates, right? You can't do that unless you do a nuclear powered test because of how everything integrates. And there was one uh, big uh, limitation on us was how much how much net energy we could produce, you know, kilowatt hours, say, uh, and not overly activate the room where the test was with radiation because they do a lot of very sensitive measurements in this uh, building we were in. And so we were we negotiated basically via a lot of calculations and talk that we would have 28 hours of, of full power operation. We're full power in this case, well, 28 hours with an average of three three kilowatts 
thermal during the test. We actually got up to five for a short period of time. And that really, that was the, that's another reason why we didn't go to higher power because we were limited in this facility to how, how much uh, radiation we could produce. And I think what happened was that we, we weren't sure, you know, because this was a test, we weren't sure how it was going to respond. We had a pretty good idea and it's so simple. It turns out the codes nailed it, but we weren't sure how long it would take, you know, uh, when we do these thermostat temperature changes, like I talked about, or we change the power draw, how long it was going to take to settle to a new steady state. And initially I calculated it might take an hour to get to a new steady state where we'd be comfortable trying another transient and, and maybe longer. But then based on the previous tests, I got better data that said, oh, I think we, we will settle to a new steady state, probably in closer to 30 minutes. And like it's so at the very, and then this was only a couple of days before the test. So it was actually the night before the test, I set on a new test plan that had more transients. And there was a little bit of debate whether we should change, but Pat, Pat had written the safety basis really was, you shall not exceed this temperature, this power, uh, you know, in, in our testing authorization, there was really no test plan we had to follow as long as we met all the uh, reg regulatory requirements. And so we did jam in, I'd say, as many trains as we could. We have a we have a chart that shows the whole 28 hours and how many different transients we did. But besides proving that it load followed the reactor power, we also showed we could tolerate a failed heat pipe or a failed Stirling converter and also tolerate a complete loss of active power draw from the system and and ran it to higher power a couple of times. Like, you know, and we had to balance how many times we wanted to reestablish a test point to make sure nothing had changed versus trying new transients. But that was probably the most fun was being able to try as many transients as we could fit in. And and I think we ended up coming about with the, about the right balance of getting a lot of good data and getting as many transients in as we could. Where is Krusty now? Did anybody think about trying to uh, extend the testing and the program to prove some new things or maybe get to the point where you had all eight Sterling engines or whatever kinds of things you can think of? Was, was that uh, under discussion or did people say, well, let's wipe our hands from that one and go on to do something else? So we actually did think about what we wanted to do with the reactor after we were done. Now, we couldn't fly it in space because once it's fissioned, although the number of long-term fission products, the actinides are low, we still wouldn't want to take that chance. Where we were lucky was, I told you, NNNSA uh, did want to do this test and did con contribute to the cost. But also, the NNNSA does a lot of work at the Nevada test site that has to do with uh, the detection of, say, an improvised nuclear device. And so uh, when we told them we were going to make this core, what they said was, well, when you're done, we want that. <clears throat> and that helped us get material because they will basically use that core uh, in exercises to uh, for where they will send out people with detectors to see if they can find something that looks a lot like an improvised nuclear device. So it's being used. And no, we probably will never get it back. How difficult would it be to, or how much would it cost, I guess, to get uh, Y12 to fabricate a couple new ones? You may do this one, Dave, since I just asked yeah. this. Yes. Yeah. So they already have the molds. They, they know exactly how to do it. So Dave alluded to the fact that we are trying to get a different agency to fly something very close to kilopower. And I have a price quote. I can get a brand new core for $5 million. Price has gone up a little but because of inflation. They've got to be, they pay people more right now. But yeah, about $5 million. For a space power system, that's not bad. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, obviously the system's going to have a lot of more costs, but to get the fuel for $5 million is about as good a deal as you're going to get. You mentioned that you operated the initial core for 28 hours. What your expected life. How long would this core last before it could no longer maintain temperature? Yeah, that's another great question. You're hitting a lot of good questions. Was there? There's there's several things that can limit your lifetime, right? Um, and the from the core perspective, 
the the first thing people look at is you know how how many radium atoms do I have? At what point will my burn up? We call it burn when we burn a U two thirty five ad and then split it into two. You know how high a burn up can I go before I don't have enough reactivity to operate? And in that case, uh, this thing could operate hundreds of years. It's in in a lot of ways, people say it's a you know, including us, it's kind of a waste of fuel, right? Because I mean, there's so many reasons why we have this system designed the way it is, but we're not really effectively getting as much energy or total fissions out of a system as we might, you know, if if we went to higher powers. But it's, there's we talked about the advantage of low power, so the core itself, from a fission standpoint um, and reactivity standpoint, could go hundreds of years. So that's no problem. Number two will then be uh, uh, material damage to the fuel itself, and any any nuclear fuel when it uh, when it burns or fissions will will have some type of swelling because in your material all of a sudden you've changed one atom into two in your lattice, right? And it's got to find a place to go, and and the more that happens, the more it kind of pushes pushes the fuel outward. And with uranium um, molybdenum fuel, that swelling can be pretty drastic or dramatically high compared to others. But that's another great thing about low power is we are a long way from hitting any limits. E even 10 kilowatts electric or 50 kilowatts thermal, uh, we're still to the point where we'll only have about much less than 1% atom percent burnout. Um, and so the kilopower system itself, the lifetime will be a will be determined by other factors right heat pipe lifetime is all a qa issue if you can make a, a heat pipe with strong welds and no impurities it it can last forever in theory you know so but that that's there's we design our system for failed heat pipes in case there is you know a fabrication error and and we generally will think then you know it's the sterling engines where where the life limiter is going to be Right. And they've they've operated these three piston Sterling engines at NASA Glenn. You know, they have some on tests that have operated decades, you know, without a problem. And they're really the they they really are mechanically simple and no reason why they should fail. Um, but you know, that they, they're gonna fail at some point. We we like the idea of, you know, the early systems will give us a good feel for how long those Sterling engines will last. We we will guarantee, you know, several years to, you know, maybe even up to 10, but the lifetime beyond that is pretty hard to predict. So these could be sitting on the moon providing power to experiments for decades. Is that what you're telling me? Correct. It And it's more likely than not that they will. Uh, you know, it, and we love the whole radioisotope community, you know, in Voyager, it, you know, it's like how it's still going, you know, you know, many decades later. I mean, it wasn't designed to do that and you would never want to promise it's going to do that. But we, we think more likely than not, uh, the average system for sure, if not all of them will, will, would last decades at these power levels. That's, that's pretty fascinating to, to imagine that kind of power level and that kind of uh, longevity. I can think of a few isolated areas on the planet, this planet, that might find such a power system useful, mainly places underwater. And one of the things that people know is nuclear has particular advantages when you're talking about uh, underwater or deep space where there is no oxygen to support combustion. I, I've been told that the Westinghouse E. Vinci, which is a much, much larger system, uh, took some lessons from yours. Do you have any relationship with those folks? Actually, a larger version, but very similar to Kilopower, was a design that actually we did right before Kilopower that, that eventually got called Megapower simply because of, the, of Kilopower's success. And Megapower was a... We were trying to see if we could recreate what the Army wanted to do with ML1, which was a mobile reactor. So we came up with a 25 metric ton, about one and a half megawatt electric reactor. It was basically UO2 fuel, still a fast reactor, heat pipes to a heat exchanger, and we were going to do open air Brayton cycle for the power conversion. 
we really like that idea that, uh, but uh, initially DARPA showed interest and then they backed away. But eventually uh, Westinghouse came to Lanel and said, hey, we like this idea. We want to license that technology. And that became the basis for eVinci. Although I would tell you that since that time, they have, uh, in order to improve their economics, they have, you know, because fast reactors use a lot of fuel, they have moved on to to other technologies, but still somewhat similar to the original mega power concept. Okay, now I'll go back to the uh, final question, the opportunity for you to share anything you might want to say about your project that I haven't stimulated during this conversation. Let me do that, Dave. You want? To- yeah, I've got something to say. You go first. <laughs> so, so Dave and I have had, along with Mark Gibson and and our company, we we have one goal. We want to get a reactor back into space. We think that's very important for the United States because of what our adversaries are doing. Uh, we think Kilopower is the perfect reactor to be the next reactor in space because it, you know, it, there's nothing left to prove. It's just a matter of going and and building a flight unit. And qualifying it, and, and and actually attaching it to a spacecraft, and getting that done, and getting it in space, we think we're getting closer. We've been working with uh, one of the U.S. agencies, and they seem very interested. And I would say that we have a fairly good chance of making that happen. My hope is within the next four years, and take Kilopower to that next step. Dave, all yours. Yeah, I my comment is more just a general comment about. You know the state of nuclear today, and and you know kind of my initial point of idealism, uh, you know, seizing the day versus pragmatism. We 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 have gotten away from realism in reactors the longer it's been since we built and tested them. Right, most people are probably aware, but maybe not. I, Idaho National Laboratory used to be called the National Reactor Testing Station. And in the 50s and 60s, there were 100 new reactors built and tested. Um, every reactor they have today was based on several tests. And, and that built a whole bunch of experience, knowledge, and capability. Uh, I, actually, when I worked at GE in the 80s, they were already thinking, man, what are we going to do when we lose all these people that actually have designed and built test reactors? That was in the 80s. I mean, well, now we're, we're 40 years after that. 60 years after we had all this expertise and people have just kind of lost touch with the reality on what, what it takes to design, build and test a new reactor. Um, That was our whole basis for doing Kilopon Krusty. We feel it's going to take simple steps to rebuild the knowledge and infrastructure. But unfortunately it's going the other direction right now. People keep proposing more advanced fire out systems, especially in space expecting them to work like uh and it's it 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 takes a lot of testing the reactor is a system not a technology right i think that's where a lot of people think if we can build this fuel if we can build this heat transport mechanism we can build this power conversion system we have a system we don't there's so much complex interplay in a nuclear system in addition to the thermal structural thing every new uh design engineer do you add nuclear just adds a whole nother dimension and you know we've seen right now i think we're seeing the peak of a cycle you know and over the past 40 years we've kind of had these uh, cycles of interest in nuclear this is the renaissance and then then it peters out when nothing gets done and i'm afraid we're in that mode right now unless we can really get something done and so it's kind of just a word of caution to everyone because you go on social media or the news, there's all sorts of great things happening in nuclear, but they're not really great things happening yet. There's just a bunch of projects and we haven't seen much actually done. And so I, I, I just kind of make a plea to the engineers not to overpromise what's realistic. In a lot of cases, they don't know they're overpromising because they don't have any experience in actual reactors. And so, our, our goal has gone completely, maybe too far to the pragmatic versus idealistic side, but we really think we're not going to get anywhere unless we actually start building and testing some reactors. Well, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I've often, especially in the last few years, reminded people that the U.S. 
may have at one time produced a lot of reactors, but those were our grandfathers working Correct. on that. And I'm saying that as a 60-year-old person. <laughs> exactly. So it, it was a very long time ago. And just because your grandfather played in the NFL doesn't mean you should try to get to the NFL without going through peewee league and high school football first. You need to practice. You need to learn how to do things and and probably suffer some failures along the way. Things are going to fail. That's almost inevitable when you're trying to do something new and you've got to learn how to adjust and how to overcome those failures. Building reactors, building power systems is a a sport that requires practice. It's an endeavor that requires continued operation. And it's a, it's a team sport where people learn to do things together and all grow their capabilities and then can pass those capabilities on to future generations. It's really a problem when you've had a huge gap in, in that process. We've got to the point now where we really don't even have people to learn from. One time I wrote a bunch of articles about the Army nuclear power program, and I had to stop writing them because all my sources kept dying. Amen. You, you, you think exactly the way we think. So I'm, I'm happy that you guys are going. I, I do think maybe I'll suggest to you that, that space is a very tiny market compared to the, the needs of energy around the world, but that's uh, for another discussion. Uh, I, I want to thank you both for taking the time to, to come in. I guess one more final question. Could uh, somebody, a, a couple of good engineers like you guys, do Krusty again today in the same kind of timeline? Or has something changed since that happened? I'll, I'll take a stab at that one. Uh, actually, people were kind of ignoring us because they thought we would fail. Matter of fact, Dave and I's boss wrote 5% on the board. That's the probability of success we had. He thought we had. I think we actually shocked people when we were so successful. So anytime, anytime you want to go do that now, there are going to be people that want to, to be a part of that and control it and tell you what to do. So I think it's doable, but it would cost more money and take longer, unfortunately. Thank you. And Thanks, again, Bob, thank you both. Yeah. Not a problem. I'm glad you guys wanted to share your story. I think it's an important one and one that many uh, engineers who listen to this podcast should should take to heart, maybe even listen to it twice. Thanks again, Great. Rod. Yeah. The Atomic Show is now a production supported by Nucleation Capital, a venture capital company that focuses on the role of advanced nuclear and deep decarbonization in an energy transition that will move the world away from fossil fuels and onto something that does not pollute the air, does not contribute to the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Projects like kilopower reactor that we just heard about indicated direction, doing something small, take incremental steps, learn how to do things right, and then move on to something better and bigger and or just develop the market for the products that you have. So that's what we are about with Nucleation Capital. And if you're interested in learning more, please make contact with me. We have a unique way of raising capital to invest in nuclear that makes it accessible to people who don't have millions or billions of dollars. If you're an accredited investor, that means somebody with at least a million dollars of net worth, excluding your house, or income of $200,000 a year or more, please uh, understand that you can invest in advanced nuclear. You can put a small portion of your capital to work doing something important for the world and also potentially providing you with a superior return on investment if you're a patient investor. Nucleation Capital is a venture capital fund. Like most successful venture capital funds, we don't focus just on technology, but finding great teams who can succeed and put their products into the market, can find customers that choose their products over competitive offerings. The Nucleation Capital website is nucleationcapital.com. There are buttons or clicks where you can express your interest in learning more, where you can find out 
what it is that we are investing in, what we're about, what our goals are. See if they're a match for your goals, for your investment profile. Learn more at nucleationcapital.com. That's all for now. There's a way, a way, such a better way today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way today. There's a better way. Today, now raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way today.